I want to tell you about a podcast that I've not just been enjoying, but learning a lot from. It's for parents like me who sometimes feel like they're failing at the very basic human responsibility of feeding their kids. Pressure Cooker gets to the bottom of all these questions that drive parents crazy. Why does feeding kids healthily feel so hard sometimes? How important is family dinner? Can you teach your kid to eat vegetables? Who invented dinosaur chicken nuggets? And why do they work so well at getting kids excited about food? Hosts Jane Black and Liz Dunn are longtime food writers, but also moms. They gather together wisdom from experts and also parents about their very real struggles to feed kids in a way that works with their budgets, their schedules, and their ideas about how their families should eat. Parents who are locked in a daily struggle of navigating manipulative marketing and impossible cultural expectations and little people with big personalities. Listen into Pressure Cooker every other week for better ways to feed your kids better. I had oat milk today. And why'd you choose it? I like I just like the taste. I feel like it's creamier than regular milk. And it's healthier for you, allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> That's it. Did you make a milk choice today? Also oat milk. I think because it is also creamier. But the whole grapeseed thing, that grapeseed oil that's in and almond it, milk. Yeah, is yeah. it almond milk or oat milk? I think it's both. It's concerning, but I choose oat milk for the taste and the creamy factor. Well, when you say it's creamier, you mean creamier than regular milk or creamier than almond? Or? Creamier than almond. Regular milk to me is gross. Yeah, I like the taste better than regular milk, to be honest. <laughs> what are you putting in your coffee and why? Are concerns about climate change fueling your decision? What about animal welfare? Maybe water issues and concerns about drought? Maybe it's just about taste. I'm Jerusha Klemperer, and this is What You're Eating, a food print project. We aim to help you understand how your food gets to your plate and see the full impact of the food system on animals, planet, and people. We uncover the problems with the industrial food system and offer examples of more sustainable practices, as well as practical advice for how you can help support a better system through the food that you buy and the system changes you push for. For the longest time, milk meant cow's milk, usually whole, but maybe skim or 1%, depending on how old you are. But today, walk into some independent chains, and if you don't specify what kind of milk you want in your latte, you'll get oat milk. You know, the stuff that mama oats feed their baby oats? Or at Starbucks or a neighborhood cafe, you might ask for a coffee with milk and have the barista say, what kind of milk? And depending where you are, that list of possible answers could include almond, oat, pistachio, macadamia, soy, the list goes on and on. In today's episode, we explore the food prints of the various options you have to make your coffee a little creamier. What are the production issues with each? What do you gain or lose by choosing one over the other? We talk to experts about dairy farming, almond farming, oat production, and more, as well as coffee professionals who are shaping the landscape in real time all to help you get to the bottom of your coffee cup. I think dairy is a super good example of really the buyer beware and that the picture on the package is there for a reason, but that is not necessarily a documentary situation where like the cows really came from that, you know, three cows on a grassy hilltop with the red barn and the pickup truck. Like there are still dairy farms doing that, uh, but there are a lot that are not. First up, the original milk, the only real milk, some might say cow's milk. Of course, it's not only going in your coffee cup or on your cereal. It's being turned into ice cream and a whole lot of cheese and incorporated into a bunch of processed foods. Dairy is really complicated, but we're going to do our best here to capture the myriad issues at play. My name is Patty Lavera, and I've worked for a long time on uh, various food policy issues. Um, and so I do work for different coalitions and groups on factory farm issues, issues for organic farmers. And for a long time, I've been really specifically spending a lot of time looking at how animals, how food animals are raised. You know, there's been a lot of attention paid to beef and what beef cattle's carbon footprint is. Um, you know, and there's some some overlap when you're thinking about milk and dairy products because they're also cows. So one thing that you hear about and it kind of gets like mis 
misconstrued in the popular imagination because it's more fun to talk about farts than burps. But there's this kind of like running gag about cow farts and, you know, climate change is happening because of cow farts. One of the issues is actually burps. It's actually the other end, right? Because cows have a, multiple stomachs and they have multiple stomachs, which lets them break down plant material that like we couldn't eat as food and get anything out of it. So they they have all those stomachs for a reason. They're breaking down various, you know, grass or, or, you know, whatever plant material they're eating, and that can produce methane. Methane is a really powerful greenhouse gas. Cattle are the number one agricultural source of greenhouse gas emissions. And while all cows burp, releasing methane and contributing to climate change, Patty was keen to point out that there are different systems for raising cows and different scales of systems, which means that not all dairy has the same carbon footprint, and we'll come back to that. But the majority of cow's milk that you can find out there is what we're talking about now. These are cows raised in the industrial system, often at something called a mega dairy. Thousands of cows, you know, maybe 10,000 cows. That's an enormous number of animals in one place. So you're concentrating them. You are very, 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 very unlikely to find a farm that has enough land base that you could walk those animals out in the morning, have them get most of the nutrition from a healthy pasture, walk them back to the barn to be milked. So now you're bringing the food to them. And that food is probably going to be corn, soy. All dairy farms use hay. They are growing grass in the summer and cutting it and storing it for the time of year where the grass isn't growing. But it's a different arrangement. If you've got 10,000 cows in one place, it might not be coming from a local source. It might not. You may not grow it. You may be buying it in. And then you're concentrating their manure in that place. And you are no longer managing it where it's, you know, scattered in a, you know, kind of, useful pattern for the grasses to grow is kind of natural fertilizer in a cycle that stays in balance. You have to move the manure out of the barn, usually with water. So now you have a lot of liquid that is full of manure. You store it in very large lagoons and, you know, neighbors hope that they don't overflow in a rainstorm or have a structural problem and leak. At some point, they need to be cleaned out. You get the solids out of the bottom and they, that is land applied technically as fertilizer, but if you overapply it because you have a lot of it and you got to get rid of it, it starts to look like waste disposal. And that's where we get into neighbors worrying about runoff into surface waters like a stream or polluting, uh, you know, wells in an area where the, the geology lends itself to things getting through the ground, to get to the groundwater really quickly. Beyond the environmental issues, there are also issues of animal welfare. Cows that are housed in mega dairies have one purpose, to produce as much milk as possible. And this near constant production takes a true toll on their bodies, and the conditions they live in can be really stressful. If they're unlucky enough to be born male, they'll be sold off to be beef cattle or raised to be sold as veal. There's also the use of routine antibiotics to prevent the spread of disease in these confined quarters, as well as the use of artificial growth hormones like RGBH on bigger farms where they're really pushing the animals to produce. It isn't the farmer and his wife or whatever anymore, but because of so many policy choices in the food system that really push like this get big or get out kind of model of agriculture, it means that farms have gotten bigger and bigger and they're milking more and more cows and each cow, like they're extracting more milk from that cow, right? And all of that pressure to produce then just gets pushed down onto workers. That's Anna Canning, former campaigns manager for Fair World Project. For their podcast, A Better World, they did an entire season called Unfair Dairy that explored the problems with our industrial dairy system. In particular, several of those episodes focused on what life is like for dairy workers. For this podcast, I talked to a bunch of organizers who work with dairy workers and you know, it's really common for workers in dairy to work, you know, like 12 to 14 hour days, six days a week. And, you know, I've heard stories of like workers getting penalized for not wanting to come in with like next to no notice and work on that one day off. It's one of those jobs that really just like works people hard. And the work itself is really grueling and it's super physical. So, you know, over the past few years, as I've been working on this Unfair Dairy series and then kind of a campaign around it, uh, looking at Chobani and a new um, fair trade dairy label made by Fair Trade USA, I've had the opportunity to talk a lot with uh, Crispin Hernandez, who is an amazing organizer with the Workers' Center of Central New York. And he was also a dairy farm worker for many years. 
And, you know, like talking with him about the work, one of the themes that was so constant was just like the rushing, right? That he'd be like working this 12 to 14 hour shift and just running the whole entire time. And, you know, the irony of this, like that rush to produce more milk, it's a rush to produce more milk that no one really needs. Like at this point, the U.S. produces more milk than is consumed. And like, there's actually a problem that exists that like people put all this time and effort into solving is like what to do with that excess milk. So I've talked a lot with dairy farm workers in the Northeast, especially New York and Vermont, and researchers there have said that it's around 80% of dairy workers are undocumented, uh, mostly from Mexico and Central America. And, you know, they're living in these, on these farms, which are often really remote. And one of the things that's been really interesting, you know, having these conversations with folks around this issue is like people don't necessarily even know where they are, like in geography, in space, because they, you know, get taken to a place and that's the place that they work. They also live on site, which means that, you know, if you speak up and about conditions on your job and, you know, the potential to get fired for that is really high and we can get back to the legal framework that makes that happen. Right. But if you were to lose your job, you would not only be out a job, you would also be out your housing. The power discrepancy between, you know, farmers and then the workers is really large. Farm workers are written out of a lot of U.S. labor law that applies to other workers. Overtime protections that, you know, most people, they work a job, they work over 40 hours a week, they get paid time and a half for that. That is not the case for farm workers. Likewise, you know, if you work most jobs, your right to organize is protected. So, you know, like you talk with your coworkers about wages, about improving labor conditions. The law says that you can't be fired for doing that. Those protections don't apply to farm workers by and large. And then being undocumented means that, you know, every single encounter with any sort of legal body has the much higher stakes. So you could be deported for, you know, any number of things. There's been a pressure on farmers for many years now to get big or get out. And for so many dairy farmers in recent years, that choice has been a forced one and they've had to get out. Dairy farmers are in crisis. The problems with dairy prices are so bad that sometimes they can actually be losing money on their milk production. So I asked Patty to explain how we got into this mess and why things are so bad for dairy farmers right now. The top level answer is we have really bad farm policy that has failed on a number of fronts in lots of sectors of agriculture, but it has been severe in dairy. Underneath that, if you break that down a little bit, um, you know, we have absolutely have a failed antitrust policy, which is just a fancy government way of saying we have let a lot of the players in that industry that stand between the dairy farm raising the cows and somebody in the grocery store buying yogurt. There, you know, there are some a lot of steps in between, and we've seen tremendous concentration in those players. So it puts those dairy farmers have fewer and fewer and fewer options to find a good deal for themselves. Dairy farmers are uniquely susceptible to a weakness in the market because there's more milk coming tomorrow. There's only so much of it you can store. Um, they have very, very, very high costs. A lot of them don't have a lot of profit or return. And they have tremendous volatility. We see tremendous swings in the price of milk. There's a joke that there's 10 people in Washington who understand how milk prices are set. I am not one of those 10 people, but I can tell you that in the Farm Bill, we do write a Farm Bill every five years, there are these very elaborate formulas where the price of milk is set. And there's reasons for that. You know, it comes from before we had a lot of the technology we have now, there was a national interest in having a regional milk supply because how far do you want to ship milk before it's not too great and it gets to you? So it was like, we have to figure out a marketplace that keeps enough dairy farmers in business in the right regions of the country so that everybody in cities like has a milk supply that works for them. 
Some of it is a relic of that. Some of it is a recognition that dairy farmers are, you know, it's hard to shop around when there's more milk coming tomorrow. It's hard to get off your farm. So it was a recognition that they needed some protection, that there would be a minimum price. But what it boils down to is the, the goals of that program are not about starting backwards from what is the cost of production for a farmer? How do we ensure that they get paid at least what it costs to produce? That is not one of the goals of that formula. But if the goal is not <laughs> to say, what is the cost of production? Can we start there as a floor? What's gonna happen when you have a couple of big players in you know, most parts of the country, they're gonna find ways to manipulate that formula. There is this squeeze coming down from the top and you know these big dairy cooperatives or dairy processors are really pushing the price down. Anna pointed out to me that part of the reason worker conditions are so bad is because dairy farmers have so little to work with and are desperately cutting corners. The farmers are not getting rich off the backs of the dairy workers. Putting it all down onto farmers to, you know, magically cough up more money in this industrial food system that is really pushing the race to the bottom. It's recognizing, okay, who has money, who has power, and how do we shift some of that down to the people who are you know, doing the work every day. There are, are family farm advocates, folks who are kind of doing, you know, the 100 head, 200 head, like smaller scale dairies who actually look to Canada where they have tremendous amount of government involvement as well, but the government is involved in saying how much milk is going to be produced and what the price for it is going to be. And they call it supply management. And that is the goal to manage the supply so that both sides of the table, the farmers and the buyers, can come to some conclusion and not have one, you know, always in the advantage over the other. And so when you talk to the dairy buyers in this country and they're like, supply management, that's the government being involved in the marketplace. And it's like the government is involved in the marketplace here. They're just involved in a way that doesn't protect farmers. Right now, it's hard not to look at dairy production as a system with a lot of losers and just a few winners. And while dairy production is not the only culprit, of course, one of those losers is rural America itself. If you have 10 farms with 100 cows, or you have one farm with 1,000, that is a different rural economy. That's a different network of neighbors, right? And then if you get to the point where you have one farm with 10,000 cows, they probably aren't going to the local hardware store to buy the things they need. They may not use the local vet because they're much more likely to be kind of affiliated with a you know, more vertically integrated supply chain. You know, are they using the local co-op or are they you know, much more tightly tied to a, a you know, kind of distant corporation? And does that money stay in the community and circulate? Like we know that it usually does with the 10 small farms versus the one big one, it, it changes the fabric of a farming community. And you hear dairy farmers in particular really talk about that. One solution that supposedly offers additional revenue streams to dairy farmers while also solving the methane problem of those manure lagoons are methane digesters. You might have heard of something called biogas, touted all over the place as green energy, a climate smart solution to the problem of methane emissions from mega dairies. The machinery of like we put a cover over this lagoon, we know the manure is breaking down, we know it's generating methane, we're gonna capture that methane and turn it into a fuel, only starts to work when you start to get to be kind of like factory farm size. So right there, we have that. There has already been one not crazy person like me, but like an academic from like UC Davis, you know, in the Aggie economics world saying, oh, we are looking at a future where that gas is worth more than the milk. Right. So this becomes yet another way that we do not demand a market that pays a fair price. And that part enrages me, <laughs> it enrages a lot of people. If you drop several million dollars, which is what we're talking about, to build a, a methane digester and then pipelines to carry that gas to wherever on earth you're going to burn it for power, there's a lot of stuff we could do with that money that's much smarter for the climate than this. Not all milk operations are the same, and there are some dairy cows that are raised in a better way, whether it's better for the animals, better for the environment, better for the workers. So how do we find that stuff? Like any conversation about food labels and shopping and how to find the best choice, it's always going to be probably situational about what's on offer and then what the best you can do in that scenario. So in terms of looking for dairy. Organic still tells you a lot 
there are changes that actually organic advocates, including me, uh, you know, work on to try to make the organic standards even better. It still tells you something. What it tells you at a minimum is, you know, that animal ate organic feed. Uh, it tells you they didn't never, never got hormones, artificial hormones, never got antibiotics, um, never been irradiated or treated in that way. So there's some, a baseline that organic tells you. There are a lot of organic dairies who are doing it the right way, and many of them are putting a grass-fed label on top of organic. So if you are going to choose dairy, look for certified organic or certified grass-fed. Both of these would indicate that you'd avoided feed grown with chemical fertilizers and pesticides, that you had avoided milk from cows administered antibiotics, and that the welfare practices were somewhat better than in conventional dairy operations. You would still be dealing with an animal product, and a product that contributes to significant greenhouse gas emissions. A practice and certification that takes things even a step further would be regenerative dairy. Regenerative practices are ones that focus on soil health and can actually capture carbon in the soil. Some big dairy companies have made commitments to more quote-unquote regenerative agricultural practices, but that's not quite the same thing as a certified regenerative dairy or a small uncertified operation that can meaningfully tell you about its regenerative practices. Certified Regenerative is a new label from A Greener World. It's one of a few new regenerative labels. And it is not only going to address soil management practices and animal welfare, it also has criteria that address worker welfare. But the reality about organic, grass-fed, and regenerative dairy is that you need to seek them out yourself. You're not going to find them in most coffee shops or restaurants. So, there are lots of very good reasons to stop drinking dairy, including one we barely mentioned, which is that somewhere between 30 to 60 million people in the U.S. are lactose intolerant. For years, there was an alternative available that was pretty popular and nearly nutritionally equivalent, soy milk. The Chinese have been enjoying soy milk for centuries, drinking it as a breakfast beverage and using it as a foundation for making tofu. It had a brief reign in the U.S. as the main milk alternative from the 70s until about a decade ago. When I first set out to do this episode, I figured I'd give the OG plant-based milk a bunch of airtime. But in doing research, I found out that in U.S. coffee shops, soy milk is on the way out or totally out as an alternative to cow's milk. So I scrapped that plan and I decided to talk next about what is statistically, for the moment, although probably not for long, the most popular alternative milk and that's almond milk. Back in 2014, I just began seeing almond milk everywhere. I picked up a carton in the store and I saw that it had very little stuff in it. Like there was very a scant amount of protein, you know, not very much in the way of any kind of vitamins or, or minerals. It was just this white fluid that was flying off the shelves and, you know, I was seeing it in hipster cafes and, you know, in Austin where I was living at the time. This is Tom Philpot, who until recently was the food and agricultural correspondent for Mother Jones magazine and the author of the book Perilous Bounty, which came out in 2020. Tom is the author of many articles about almond production and almond milk, including his very controversial 2014 piece, Lay Off the Almond Milk, You Ignorant Hipsters. I, you know, just had this conversation with myself where, you know, I was like, I don't get almond milk. I don't get its appeal. And I brought that to my editor. I was like, I'm going to write a piece about how I don't get almond milk. And that's how that piece started. And it was just this, you know, to me, this curiosity of, you know, why is this, this stuff so popular? And so I filed my piece and some wag came up with the headline, lay off the almond milk, you ignorant hipsters. And so that got slapped on the piece. And it remains by far the most read thing I've ever written. I think it's the only thing I've ever written that is officially, quote unquote, gone viral. Um, it was just sort of a reflection and just a, a guy with a computer wondering, like, why is this stuff so popular? <laughs> Part of the reason why I got so much trouble for it was that I was at the, same, at the time writing a bunch of articles about the California drought and the expansion of almonds. And it became this stand-in for all my work on almonds. And most of my work on almonds was really researched, considered, and uh, was making a very specific argument about water resources and power in this incredibly important agricultural valley in California. I mean, I think the 
the main problem with almond milk or with almonds as a substitute for something that's widely consumed like milk is, is that almonds have a really small geographical region in which they can grow. They basically can only grow in Mediterranean climates and they can really only grow on a vast scale in a Mediterranean climate area that has access to lots and lots of water. They're a very thirsty crop. They grow best in sort of almost desert-like conditions like you get in hotter Mediterranean climates. So they need a, a lot of dryness, but they also need consistent and steady trickles of water. They tend to be industrial, industrially produced in areas where agricultural interests are able to grab lots of water. And when they grab lots of water, they leave a lot of other potential users of that water, for example, people who live in the region, um, essentially high and dry. They're actually a, a, a fantastic crop. They've been around for a long time. They've, they've been grown in the Middle East and the you know, Eastern Mediterranean and later Western Mediterranean for thousands of years. And there's nothing wrong with them per se but making them into a mass product is really problematic. No consumer woke up one morning in 2005 and said, screw this milk, I wanna drink milk from almonds. What happened was there was this vast system that developed that allowed farmers to take control of these water resources in California. Um, you know, essentially massive amounts of subsidized water and ask themselves, what is the most profitable use that I can put this water that I've been that I've gained control of? What it, you know, what is the most profitable way that I can use it? And they settled on almonds as a choice, and it was extremely successful. So there was this massive machinery developed over decades to become the sort of Saudi Arabia of almonds in California. Tom explained that after all the perfectly shaped and sized almonds get picked out for bags of nuts and stuff like that, the scrappy ones that are too small or weirdly shaped or dinged up, they get shunted off to almond butter or candies, and almond milk comes from that same stream of seconds. Some genius said, let's take some of these almond seconds and crush them really fine and put, them, put a whole bunch of water with them, mix them with a whole bunch of water. And I think I calculated my piece that essentially like a small handful of almonds goes into a big jug of almond milk and, you know, sweetened and thickened with various, um, you know, chemicals and turned into this facsimile of milk. And consumers turned out to like it. When you're drinking almond milk, you're not necessarily driving the growth of almond production in California but you're, all, you're making it more profitable, um, you know, in a, in, a, in a kind of marginal way. You're, you're making the waste, essentially the waste product um, more profitable, which makes it more profitable, which does encourage expansion. Um, and something else we should say about California is that the drought there has gotten so extreme and the sort of recurring droughts, you know, essentially drought is emerging as a new normal in California. And that's forcing, these almond growers to rely more and more on groundwater, on finite aquifers, which are being drained at a very rapid pace. And um, along about 2021 and into this year, we have reached the era of peak almond in California. Decades and decades of expansion of almond groves has essentially stopped. That doesn't mean that your almond milk is going away anytime soon, but what that does mean is that you're not going to see an expansion of almonds. It's not going to get any cheaper, probably. It's probably going to get more expensive. And whatever market share it has right now in the overall milk market is not going to rise. We have reached peak almond. And the, you know the, the problems with that have been driven by all, the expansion of almond groves in California are essentially the drawing down of these aquifers um, in a region of the San Joaquin Valley of California mainly, um, where millions of people live and partially really driven by this expansion of almonds, their access to water is getting more and more polluted as the aquifer drops agrochemical pollution that's in there and also some naturally occurring minerals like arsenic that are in there get more and more concentrated. And in many cases, their access to, uh, to water at all vanishes. And I did a piece um, 
I think in early 2022 about just the you know shocking rise of private and community wells going dry in California, where you, you know you essentially wake up one morning and no water is coming out of your tap, and a nonprofit has you have to mobilize a nonprofit to bring literally a water truck to attach to your house. That's happening en masse in California in this one valley and the expansion of almond groves are a big factor behind that. It's true that, you know, as the water vanishes, it isn't as though the agricultural interests are told, oh, you, you can't use anymore now. Um, essentially, they have free reign to use as much as they want. And, you know, it's people who live there who tend to be farm workers, who tend to be low income, who tend to be, you know, largely Latino who pay their price. There's something called the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act in California that Tom says will eventually help. But the way it's structured, it doesn't really kick in robustly until 2040 and doesn't give residents of the valley the same level of water access as the farming industry, which leaves us with another 20 years of agricultural interests draining down a whole lot of that water. Ironically, the exact same area that we're talking about for almond production, San Joaquin Valley, is also one of California's two or three, I think maybe two biggest producers of dairy. And there's actually a connection between the two. Uh, the two are related in that particular area because when you process almonds, you have all these holes. Uh, you know, basically, the processing machines uh, peel the hole off of the almond. And so I've got pictures of myself standing next to mountains of holes. These holes, they don't become a waste product and go to the landfill. Where they tend to go is into the dairy industry. They tend to be, they, they turn out to be a supplementary feed for dairy cows. Um, and so, you know, when you're buying almond milk uh, from California, thinking that you're um, getting away from the dairy industry and not supporting the dairy industry, there is a way in which you are, uh, because that what that's doing is taking a waste stream from this massive, I would say, overproduction of almonds and turning it into another profit stream for almonds, but also a cheap feed for dairy. So just, just something to consider. Um, but it is certainly true that there's no easy answer to this. Like, if I'm a critic of almond milk, that doesn't mean I think that everyone should, you know, suck down all the dairy that they can possibly get their hands on or that we should have massive dairy operations either. There are lots and lots of trade-offs here. When Tom wrote, lay off the almond milk, you ignorant hipsters, there was a sense that almond milk was this ascendant product. It was dominating the plant-based milk market. And it's a trip to read these pieces from 2014 and see not a whiff, not a mention of oat milk, which is the thing that we all think of now as the dominant, some insist the tastiest, plant-based milk. In 2016, Philpot wrote about oat milk in a really excited way, that it would be great if oat milk could spark an agricultural revolution. Well, my first thoughts about oat milk were that when I looked at almonds, what I saw was a crop, like I said before, that can only be grown on a really tiny set of circumstances globally. Um, you can't grow almonds in New York or Iowa or Texas or very many places in the world. But oats are quite a contrast. Oats um, have been grown for a long time in a whole bunch of different ways, in a whole bunch of different ge geological in geographical contexts, uh, they're this really versatile crop. When you switch a vegetable grove in the San Joaquin Valley to an almond grove, you're taking sort of broccoli off the market and making it more expensive. But most places where you would grow oats on a large scale would be in places right now that are having really destructive corn and soybean agriculture. The places where it really is going to flourish and be grown on a large scale would be in the Midwest. And it would actually be an amazing thing if they went from just having two crops in their rotation to having a third crop. And oats, they're a grass, uh, so that means they're really good at fixing um, carbon. They don't fix nitrogen, but you can grow them along with legumes like clover and just get all of these amazing gains from this kind of agriculture, whereas Almond milk is sort of reinforcing this destructive 
system of agriculture in the in the uh, Central Valley, oat milk had the potential to help diversify the Midwest and bring a bunch of ecological gains with it. One thing that I found when I, when I was researching that article and writing it was that um, it takes so few oats to make a carton of oat milk that even if oat milk far outstripped almond milk in popularity, even if, even if it took all the market share from you know dairy milk itself, it still wouldn't require enough acres of oats to really make a big difference in the Corn Belt. And that's something I had to um, really drive home to my editor um, during the, you know, we can't oversell this. This is this milk is not gonna change everything, even though that's what the title of the um, article ended up being. But it could, it could help, could help change things and at least like not do any damage. Oatmeal can be part of a push to diversify the Corn Belt. It can be a spur to converting it. And I think if some of these companies were to commit to getting more of their oats from the U.S., I think that it could it could help jumpstart the whole project of diversifying the Corn Belt and adding another crop to, to the mix. And the, the research on what it would do to add a third crop to the mix in, in the Corn Belt is really stunning. There's great research out of Iowa State University showing that just by adding a third crop to the corn-soy mix, so rotating in every third year, something like oats, you would make fertilizer use plunge. And there's a huge problem with fertilizer pollution going into water and causing algae, algae blooms in the Midwest. And you can make herbicide use plunge because by adding a third crop, you interrupt weed patterns. Crop rotation ends up being a natural herbicide. Um, and so you could... Um, make herbicide use plunge. And there's also huge problems with herbicide resistance, with herbicide pollution of water. So there would be massive benefits, but oat milk itself couldn't make that happen, but it could certainly spur it. You know, one of the problems with doing oats in the Corn Belt is that there hasn't been the research devoted to oats as there, you know, anywhere close to what there's, what there's been devoted to corn and soybeans. And they have trouble getting the protein content of the oats up to a certain level. They can't get it up to the Canadian level uh, and the level that a lot of cereal manuf- manufacturers and oat milk producers would want. But if companies would commit to buying U.S. oats, it would spur that research and you could get this positive feedback loop that could get us started on the path towards converting much more of the Midwest farmland into having three crops, which would just have so many societal benefits. And so while I am suspicious of consumer behavior as some panacea, sometimes I'll get a latte with, um, with oat milk instead of regular milk, and it can be actually quite good, and I feel pretty good about it, even though I know that I'm not changing everything when I do it. Almond and oat are the top dogs in the alternative milk market, but they're not the only options. Coconut milk blends are very popular. There are more and more pea milk blends and various other nut milks from macadamia to cashew. One thing that remains controversial in certain places is what we call these alternative or plant-based milks. The dairy industry really does not want them called milk or sharing supermarket shelf space with milk. And in this way, it's a similar fight to the one over plant-based meats. The stated concern is that consumers will be confused. I was pretty interested to discover that Patty and Tom have different takes on, some might say different levels of cynicism about, the motives for these pushbacks to the word milk. The culture wars that we are experiencing in our society in general were really perfected in agriculture, and people love nothing more than just to bicker uh, about, you know, why your choice is wrong. So there's just a lot of, like, pent-up, like, vegan bashing that's happening here, and vice versa. You know, there's a lot of, like, you know, folks who are critical of animal agriculture who lump every dairy farmer in together and don't see any difference with, you know, this hundred cow operation that's doing super impressive things, you know, to maintain their landscape and sequester carbon and all that. And they're putting that in the same boat as, you know, a 50,000 head monstrosity, right? So there's plenty of ammunition on all sides for the culture war, which is feeling some of this. There are some super fascinating, but super nerdy arguments about the labels and just old laws. We have really old laws um, that come from the fifties about how you define what you can call something so and they actually make sense so like 
if you think about, you know, 100 years ago when we started to get the Food and Drug Administration, when we started to get like pure food and drug laws, a lot of what was driving that was essentially counterfeiting, right? Like the people ground up weird stuff and they put it in the flour to stretch it out and this stuff wasn't healthy. Or, you know, we've seen that even in more recent times, especially with imports. So, you know, we have a lot of stuff in our law that sounds, you know, it sounds archaic, but it's there for a reason about like, to call a food cheese, it must be made of this. And those laws are still on the book. So like there are legal fights about what qualifies as milk. And actually what's in the books right now says, everyone makes fun of it. It's like, it's the lacteal secretion of a cow, you know, or like it's the lacteal secretion of a mammal. And so like you either have to change that and have that public comment throw down about whether that can come from an almond or you have to come up with a different word for, for, you know, milk, quote unquote, that comes from an almond. And like, we're sorting through all that now in the lens of a culture war on Twitter. But if you really get down to what's hurting dairy farmers, that's not helping them by any stretch. But what is hurting them is a marketplace that does not pay them what they need to be paid. And we have a marketplace that does not pay them what they need to be paid because we have a farm bill that doesn't protect them and tells them just to produce more more, 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 more. So the prices can go down. So these buyers can get it for cheaper and then says, oh, we'll sell you an insurance policy and you should gamble on what the right insurance policy is to make up for that loss. I mean, that's what they're getting while everyone's over here fighting about whether milk can come from a nut. This has become um, a major, I called it in a recent article, a Tempest in a cappuccino cup because for most consumers, it means nothing. Uh, so consumers have been conditioned for generations that when I pour some crunchy cereal in a bowl, I need to pour some white fluid on top of it. Or when I make my coffee, I should put some sort of white fluid in it to sort of tame the strong flavor of coffee. Um, and so for consumers, that's really what's going on here. And so when they see oat milk, they think, oh yeah, yeah, this is something I, I don't wanna use dairy milk. So this is something I can use for all the uses I have for, for dairy milk. And it's pretty simple. And you won't find a consumer saying, oh, wait a minute, I thought that it was somehow the same as dairy milk or that it had the same nutritional profile. That's a total myth. For consumers, there is no confusion here. No one thinks they're getting something that they're not. However, the dairy industry in its desperation over the long uh, and slow decline of liquid milk consumption is having a meltdown about it and wanting to seize hold of that name. If it's milk, it's gotta be dairy milk. Uh, and it's a very powerful industry. So it's going to the federal government, going to the FDA and filing these complaints and demanding that the FDA take this action to prevent you know, your favorite oat milk company from calling their drink oat milk. And they want you to call it oat beverage. I think it's ridiculous, and I think it's just a completely misguided uh, attempt by the industry to, you know, get its way. It's not going to gain anything from it. It's not going to stop this long decline in uh, fluid milk consumption that goes back to the 70s or even the 60s, uh, long before almond milk became a consumer product. But in fact, overall consumption of milk is not dropping. People are drinking less milk, um, but they're eating more cheese and yogurt. And so what you see is overall dairy consumption is pretty flat. It's not declining. And the U.S. dairy herd is, I believe, um, as high as it's ever been. There are more dairy cows in America than there ever have been before. It's at, at or near an all-time high. And so these, these alt milks really aren't moving the needle. Like I remember I'm in my mid-50s, and when I was a kid, like my dad would drink milk as a beverage and we were encouraged to drink milk as a beverage. I don't know any adults who are like, you know what, I'm thirsty. I'm going to have a glass of milk. You know, milk is almost uh, exclusively consumed by kids or in coffee or in cereal, but it just turns out it's not that fun to drink. These alt brands are coming in and sort of taking advantage of that and kind of filling a niche, but they're not stopping the, the machine that is the dairy industry. And I think you know, going back to our conversation about structural change versus individual choice, reigning in the dairy industry through regulation is really where we have to go, or we're going to continue having these massive dairies in the San Joaquin Valley, in Wisconsin, you know, in places like the Northeast, where they're driving out 
small um, mom and pop dairy operations and putting in these giant ones in their place. That is, that's not going to be stopped by these salt milks. And that's where we get to the point that we as a society through democracy have to come together and figure out ways to rein in these companies. I think from the beginning, we've had a holistic philosophy that like, we can't, we can't be preaching um, organic farming or certain types of coffee practices. And then at the same time, turn around and be, you know, throwing all that coffee in a styrofoam cup and slinging it out at, at different cars driving by. My name is John Allen. I am the co-founder of Honest Coffee Lab. We are a specialty coffee roastery here in Northwest Arkansas. And I am the head coffee buyer and now creative director for our brand, um, which includes kind of branding and architecture, menu design and things of, of that nature. You know, we wanted to be truly intentional about kind of the entire process. Um, and that can be from how we source to honestly what we're publishing and, and kind of the educational platform around how coffee really works, because I think there is a a large disconnect in the West on how, just how the coffee industry works for something that is so large, you know, this this beverage that honestly, we probably all consume every day or most people listening to this. To know so little is, is, is very rare and strange as far as an industry goes. And it makes sense that, you know, there's coffee's not grown here. So um, there's not an expectation the way corn and soybeans and rice and things like that that we're used to. John was talking to me from inside Onyx's Roastery, a pretty noisy place, so forgive the sound quality here. We spoke about how Onyx Coffee Lab made the decision to serve oat milk as the default milk in one of their locations, based inside of a contemporary art space. In a flip of usual cost structures, instead of charging more for plant-based milk, there, they charge extra for cow's milk, calling it a carbon tax. Well, there's a couple of reasons why we kind of chose that cafe for it. The, the first was that it there's an ironic twist and that it was, um, it's now a modern art museum and sort of a performing arts museum, but it originally was a craft cheese factory. When I say cheese with air quotes, but it was the largest dairy user in, in Arkansas. You know, as we were planning the cafe, we just sort of originally thought like this would be great. We've kind of been talking internally for a while about part of the environmental impact of dairy and also the other assets that people don't really think about in cafe design when it comes to milk, like the amount of refrigeration you have to have and therefore the amount of power to even cool that milk and how you deliver it and all these things. So it became clear that this was like kind of a match made in heaven where we could sort of give an ironic twist and also move in a direction we were hoping to move as a company. We basically have a very, very low footprint as far as refrigeration goes um, and offer uh, oat milk and then charge a carbon tax or a dairy tax for any beverage that's going to use a milk-based product. And it's been really interesting. The reception's been fantastic. I mean, to be honest, I think 99% of consumers don't even know that it's changed, right? They, they look at the menu, they might read the fine print, they might not, but the reaction has basically either been non-existent or excited. Non-existent as in like no idea they're drinking oat milk right now. <laughs> or too excited about the prospect that, oh, maybe I can switch and I've just never actually tried it. It sounds like a main motivator for you all was the power and kind of the carbon involved in the energy used to refrigerate the milk. How much of that decision was about dairy production versus oat production? Quite a bit. I mean, there were... You know, it's hard to like split a pie and say like how much of my initial thought was based on this. But I think, I think again, looking at that holistic picture, it's like we know a bit about the dairy industry or enough to understand um, the carbon that's involved in it. And so there's always been a push towards moving towards different alternative milks. Um, I think the Honestly, I think especially the coffee industry has been really great about championing that movement in general um, and bringing a bit of awareness to it. So that was that was a big portion. And then again, I think the refrigeration was the other big aspect. I mean, we we really spend a lot of time cooling milk and working through architectural design to hide refrigerators, and then 
refrigerators are letting off hot air in the building. So therefore you have to add more to your HVAC unit to cool the load. And so it just becomes this cycle that just doesn't need to exist. It can be hard for individuals to feel or see a kind of collective impact of their individual choices, especially when we're talking about, you know, a tablespoon or whatever of some kind of milk going into your coffee or latte. I asked John about the collective impact of Onyx's decision to default to oat milk, what that looks like in terms of numbers and gallons. I wholeheartedly think that every little bit does move the meter, um, especially when you look, and I can only speak for the coffee industry, but whatever we do as a high-end specialty coffee community will be reverberated five years from now through the big guys. Starbucks offering oat milk with only now and nitro cold brew and whatever flavors they're offering, you know, you may think that we look down on, but it actually gets us excited. It's, you know, we look at it and say, great, these are things we were doing five, 10 years ago, but we know that those will start to flow down and sort of this all tides sort of rise all ships mentality. Um, so we think about that a lot. We can feel really good about that influence instead of just thinking through the actual Here's the raw data of milk we've saved. Now those can also start to grow and become exponential. I think I can just say from from our experience, we we have five cafes total. We average two to three hundred gallons of milk per week per location. And so, with going to oat milk at our most recent location, um, and it's been open for two years, that's about. 21,000 gallons of milk that we basically have not used. And, and we're obviously one small cafe inside of an art museum. Like it's our least busy cafe. So um, I do think that there can be some pretty big impact, but I more so than the raw numbers of your you know local cafe movement, I think it is the, you know, we become the tastemakers for the large companies and the conglomerates. And so it's important to know that when you go to your local cafe and order something like you're also, you're basically voting into that tastemaker series that will then have reverberations five years from now. So which milk has the lowest food print? Of the three big players we looked at, cow's milk, almond milk, and oat milk, oats do fare pretty well, especially if you choose organic oat milk. Oat milk is humane, Nutritious, better for the climate than industrial dairy, better on water than dairy and almonds. An additional plus that I hadn't considered at the outset is that it's shelf-stable, and so it uses less electricity to keep it cold all the time. Of course, there are lots more plant-based options on the market, and things will continue to evolve. What You're Eating is produced by Nathan Dalton and Foodprint.org, which is a project of the Grace Communications Foundation. Special thanks to Patty Lavera, Tom Philpot, Anna Canning, and John Allen of Onyx Coffee Lab. You can find us at www.foodprint.org, where we have this podcast as well as articles, reports, a food label guide, and more. How do you drink your coffee? <laughs> Black, obviously. There's no need for milk when it's good coffee. So. You know, the real answer to all of this should be that if everyone would just buy actually nice, expensive coffee, which I know sounds super biased, but if you would if you would buy nice coffee, you would end up ensuring that producers would be paid, and then you can cut out the cost of milk anyways. <laughs>